kind of crazy. We're actually starting lesson 35, which is the last lesson in our uh, study here of the Gospel of John. So it's a, uh, it's a good one, a very challenging one, as they all have been, I hope. This one in particular. But <clears throat> in the last one. Lesson 35 in your books, and then John 21. Lesson 35, and then John 21, and then book. I'm actually going to read the intro to the lesson here. Peter and the other disciples are getting restless. Peter, ever impatient and impulsive, was itching to do something. The city around was getting to him. He had to act. I'm going fishing. Declared. The other six disciples were with them. We know that Thomas, Nathaniel, James, and John were there. Uh, the other two disciples are not named for us. Readily agreed, we're going with you. On the surface, this incident seems quite normal. The men who are used to being active, just coming around with nothing specific or purposeful to do, soon would get to the active person. Think about it for a moment. When Christ had called, first called Peter, James, and John from their fishing nets to become fishers of men, he would ask them to give up everything to serve him. Yet Peter and the others turn around here and go fishing again. Did you ever wonder where they got the boat and equipment to go fishing? At this point, did they charter the boat for someone? Did they have to go out and buy or borrow a fishing net? Hadn't they got rid of their boats and equipment when they stopped fishing and followed Christ? Apparently not. They held on to the equipment from their old profession and they began to follow Christ. Did they think that his call was only temporary? Or did they think that perhaps following him was too risky? And if that pursuit failed, they could always return to their former profession? We don't really know what went through their minds. We do know that they still had their equipment and returned very easily and quickly to their old profession. Contrast these disciples' situation with the kind of Elisha's response when Elijah called him in 1 Kings 19, 20-21. Elisha was plowing the twelve deer of oxen in a field when Elijah found him and cast his mantle upon him. In the picture, twelve deer of oxen controlling so many brute beasts must have been a dog task. But Elisha left the oxen and ran after Elijah. After speaking to the old prophet briefly, he then returned to his oxen, slew them, and boiled their flesh with the instruments of the oxen. You might say that he was burning his bridges behind him. He was leaving no opportunity for himself to go back following the call of God upon his life. Unlike the disciples, who apparently kept all of their fishing gear in storage just in case, Elisha destroyed everything that tempted him to go back to his calling. Returning our attention to the disciples, however, we nowhere see mention that Peter and the others ever prayed about what they were going to do. They never asked God's blessings on them. They just did. Following the impulse of Peter. There was nothing wrong with fishing. It was an honorable profession. A good job. <clears throat> if that's what God had called them to do. But he had given them a new mission. Would they now back me out on that mission to return to their old ways? The result was failure. They fished all night without so much in the Jesus had told them earlier, without me you can do nothing, John 55, but they quickly forgot. Only later when they obeyed the instructions of Jesus to cast their net on the other side of the boat did they catch any fish. Only when they followed Christ would he give them success in their labors. How often we are like those disciples. 
We've recognized and answered God's call upon our lives, but then some setback or disappointment causes us to look with longing eyes for the good old days, or we're tempted to return to what we were doing before he called us, rather than waiting on his instructions and seeking his will for our action. We jump back to our past activities and struggle to be successful in our own strength. But God has not promised to bless what we do ourselves, but only what he does through Christ called the fishermen from the shore, children, happy, and he was essentially calling them boys. And his question was prodding their consciences with the fact that despite all their nice efforts, they didn't have anything edible to show for it. When we work on our own strength, we will return home empty-handed, with no lasting results from our labors. Christ-directed service, however, always brings results. Bling, I think it's Oliver B. Green, concluded... When we obey the Lord and seek his will for our lives, we will be successful in the undertaking he assigns us. Wherever he leads, if we follow his leadership and trust him for the outcome, we can count on blessings and outstanding results. Success in God's ministry is not determined by eloquence, education, or dynamic personality, but by the power of God in the life of the believer. May each of us be willing to surrender all for the high calling of God in Christ Jesus, to never return to the former ways, even when we're forced to wait and wait for further instructions from the Lord. Let's turn to John 21. We're going to go ahead and read the chapter. It's a shorter one. John 21. We'll go around the room and read it like we normally do. John 21 is the last, last chapter in the Gospel of John here. We started last week the first post-resurrection appearance here. Actually, the technically saw the first and the second uh, post-resurrection appearance of Jesus. This is the third, and you'll see in the passage. John 21, verse 1. That these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples of the sea of Tiberias, and on this wise showed he himself. There were together Simon Peter and Thomas, called Didymus, and Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee and two other of his disciples. Simon Peter saith unto them, I go a fishing. They say unto him, We also go with thee. They went forth and entered into a ship immediately, and that night they caught nothing. That's in the morning, was now come. Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples knew not that it was Jesus. Then Jesus saith unto them, Children, have ye any meat? They answered him, No. He said unto them, Cast the net on the right side of the ship, ye shall find. They cast before the before, and now they were not able to draw it for the multitude of fishes. Therefore, that disciple who Jesus loved said unto Peter, It is the Lord. Now, when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he prepared his fisher's coat, for he was fishing. He did cast himself. And the other disciples came in a little ship, for they were not far from the land, but as it were two hundred cubits, dragging the net with fishes. As soon then as they were come to the land, they saw a fire of coals there, and fish laid thereon, in bread. Jesus said unto them, Bring of the fish which ye have not caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net, the land full of great fishes, and hundred and fifty-three and for all there were so many, yet was not the net broken. 
is unto men, come and dine in one of the disciples' jurisdictions who are out, knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus didn't come in and take his bread and give it to them and fish like us. This is now the third time that Jesus showed himself to the disciples after he was risen from the dead. So when they had dined, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, the son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Be my lamb. He saith to him again, He saith he saith unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Peter was grieved because he said unto him the third time, Lovest thou me? And he said unto him, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. Jesus saith unto him, Feed my sheep. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, When thou wast young, Thou girdest thyself, and walkest whither thou wouldest. But when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands, and another shall gird thee, and carry thee whither uh, thou wouldest not. This speech is signifying by what death he should glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he saith unto him, Follow me. Then Peter, turning about, seeth the disciple whom Jesus loved following, which also leaned on his breast at supper, and said, Lord, which is he that betrayeth thee? Peter seeing him said to Jesus, Lord, and what shall this man do? Jesus said unto him, and he did not know that he tarried. So I come, and what is that to thee that all of them? Then went the same wrong on the brethren, that that disciple should not die. But Jesus said, not unto him, he shall not die. But if I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to be? This is the disciple which testified these things, and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. There are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they should be written every one, I suppose that even the world itself is not contained in books that should be written. Why an interesting <coughs> situation should sound familiar to other uh, accounts that you should have. This lesson brings us to the conclusion here of our study of life of John, uh, study of life of Christ from John's Gospel. So as we begin, we're 80 miles north of Jerusalem on the Sea of Galilee. If you think about that one, it would have taken time to get there. So fishing wasn't as self organized to go right down the road. So fishing, you know, they had to go all the way back to Galilee to uh, do it. Seven disciples were gathered in a boat in which they'd been fishing all night. Peter said that he's going fishing, and it's evidence, of course, of his strong leadership and influence. You can see that among the disciples. Six other ones go with him. Again, these guys are professional fishermen. They weren't just like casual, casual anglers, which you might not see with me. Before they met the Lord and answered his call, he called them to become fishers of men. But they knew they knew what they were doing. So it was quite unusual for them not to catch you. As dawn came, you have seven tired, disgusted fishermen, empty-handed, and sitting within 100 yards, which says 200 cubits, so 
Two by 18 inches, 300 feet, 100 yards. When they're startled off the beach, when they're startled by a voice calling to them from the shore, of course, the man implies that he knew that they hadn't caught anything. And there was a question, have ye any meat? And I'm like, I suppose that you have no meat. Got a question. Kind of reminds us that Jesus is omniscient. He already knew. Jesus asked questions and he already knew the answer to. We see that so much. But it's to get the recipient to think. The disciples conceded to him that they had indeed caught nothing. All right. Then he told them to cast their net on the right side of the ship, which they did so, no doubt, maybe somewhat reluctantly, and they caught 153 fish caught. That's quite a haul. That would be quite a fishing trip, wouldn't it, Andy? So it's actually interesting. We're now going to, if, if you kind of get an understanding of first century fishing techniques, it kind of going to help us understand the events of what's actually going on here. So we're going to look at that. I kind of gave a teaser, I don't know if it was last week or two weeks ago, about the fish actually that they probably were after. But if you look at, uh, well, hang on for a second. Most fish were caught along the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. There's actually a map in the back of your book. If you go ahead and turn there, it's, um, it'll look like this. Jesus' final year of ministry will be on the one side. Jesus in his last months on the other, and then it's a map of the uh, Sea of Galilee here. You see that in the back of your book. Almost the last page, not quite, but almost. You'll see a map there, some familiar places with Santa, Capernaum, Magdala, Tiberias, and that kind of stuff. But most were caught along the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. The most desirable fish was known as the tilapia, or the musht in Arabic, as it's called. There you go. St. Peter's fish. Lovely. It was semi-tropical and schooled near warm springs. And about, if you look, keep your map up here, about a mile west of Capernaum lay the village of what's called Hapka, where there were six warm springs that fed the Sea of Galilee. And of course, that would attract, attract the Tilapia there. And it probably was there that the disciples most often fished. So again, you can see on your map there, Capernaum, so a little bit west, Tagba, as it's called. And close by the small harbor, actually here you can see kind of here right there. Um, there was a actually there was a large rock upon which fishermen would spread out their nets and mend them and prepare them for fishing. You call what were his disciples doing when he said, Follow me for the first time? Nets, right? Today, there's actually a tiny chapel that kind of sits on this rock that's right there. But and it was here that you know, the, the fishermen would uh, gather in the winter and launch their boats in the small harbor. This is where many of us see today. Small harbor that, that was there. This is actually interesting. This is the remains of a first century fishing boat, a first century boat. That was found sitting in a 2000 year old boat, and that's pretty impressive. Um, found a number of years ago near Magdala. If you look on the map, you can see that. Um, Christ's disciples most likely used a boat similar to this. Um, and yeah, I think there's those guys who actually found it are still alive today. Um, the two archaeologists that guy actually found it in Israel. 
but it was about 25 feet long, um, 12 to 14 person capacity, which sounds about right, 12 disciples. Jesus. And the back section, covered for storage, large enough for someone to lie down in. That sound somewhere familiar. Master, perish thou not till we perish. It's interesting, now getting into the fishing part, it's interesting, generally fishing was done at night using what's called a large trammel net. I see a picture of that here. It was actually, it was a compound net consisting actually of three different layers um, held together by like a single corked top right there, of course with a float, and had a single weighted foot rope on it holding thing, that part of it. There again, so three different layers on that. picture up here. You would have um, the two external and outside layers were identical. They would consist of like large mesh, large places, large holes, and they'd be about six feet long. And sandwiched between them would be a middle layer of very fine mesh net. And it would be longer than the other two, so it would hang down all the way between them. So if you think of, okay, there's kind of like your top, your cork have like two outer layers. Remember the finer, the wider holes in it. And then you have your center layer that would go down further of your finer mesh. So if you can picture that, that's kind of like what that had been meant what they would tremble in. Then they wait until nightfall and go out about a couple hundred yards from the shore. They would then let down this net in like a wide D-shaped curve. So kind of like that, and let down the net kind of in the format out like that. Of course, they marked the ends of the net with floats, so you could see where that was. And then the bottom of the net here would settle down to the bottom of the lake, the bottom of the lake floor. So then you would have several fishermen in the second boat would then enter the area between, here's the shore, they'd enter the area between the shore and the net and then splash with the oars to scare the fish and make them run and dive for deeper water to run into that, to run into the net, what they would have to do. Fish would run through the outer net, which they can swim through, hit the center net, which is very fine, push through to the back net with the bigger holes and just get hopelessly entangled in the net. So third, you kind of can picture how that might be. The net would then be hauled to shore, the fish would be disentangled one, one by one on that. The process would be repeated some 10 to 12 times a night, potentially. So on a good night, the fishermen could catch up to 200 pounds of fish. And during the tilapia season, they might catch 500 pounds in a single night. So that's a big difference between that and that. So the reason they fished at night was obvious. Such a large net could be seen by fish during the day. So their trammel is essentially useless except at night. That's why they fished at night. But the tilapia, however, is a jumping fish. So they would often jump the net if they saw it in time. So what they would do sometimes, they'd alter the trammel net here on occasion by adding what they call a veranda or a porch to the top of the net. And it would consist of this 
floating beads attached to a net that would float in a circle around the top. So if you picture your net like that, so probably like another net that would float out kind of like that. So they jump it, they land right in that, into the other net. That would kind of be the back behind here, kind of like that. The first boat would spread the trample, and the second boat would add the veranda around it, the floating circle. In this way, the fish that sought to jump the net would get entangled in the porch. <coughs> and then finally, you would have one, one of the fishermen would then enter the circle here to catch those fish that wouldn't jump or wouldn't run into the net. They would kind of just like get in there. He would have this guy would enter it. He'd throw out a small cast net, let it sink to the bottom, dive down, and then pull it up and get them all. There was ones that wouldn't run into the net or wouldn't jump. To do so, you'd often need to strip to the waist so not to be encumbered with clothes. And apparently, this type of fishing was what the disciples had done all night. And apparently, Peter was the fisherman in the middle, because you know, John describes him as naked. Apparently, Peter, Peter was the middle man, middle fisherman, that man. It's kind of interesting when you think about it like that. I think it's a little more sense of what they were doing and why it didn't make sense. They didn't catch anything and stuff like that. That wouldn't get old. Imagine doing that thing both on the night and nothing. They just catch them all. So no wonder they were amazed when the stranger, probably standing on a large flat rock over here, there, told them to let down their nets on the right side of the boat. It's now daytime. And you don't catch fish in the morning this way. Especially when you've caught nothing all night. Nevertheless, they do it. And they get rewarded with a huge catch for uh, 153 fish. So as a seasoned fisherman, how would you have reacted to that stunning event? What would have been your initial explanation? <clears throat> if I was one of them, I would have recalled the first fishing trip. This is not the first time they've had a miraculous catch. Earlier in the Gospels, in the very initial part when Jesus called them, it was a similar thing. Remember, Peter said, we fished all night and caught nothing, and he told us to cast the net on the other side. Nevertheless, at thy word, I will. And he did it. That's when they caught huge fish. That's the one where and that's almost broke, and the boat's almost sank. And I had to call the partner, which is another boat, to come help them. But it's interesting. Who was the first to recognize who this was? Go back and look at the uh, scripture here. I think we see it in verse 7. John? John was the first to recognize this is the word of God. But Peter was the first to head short. Seal here. It's interesting. The contrast between these two personalities, Peter and John, is really interesting. You see it in the Gospels. Both of them raced to confirm Mary's announcement of an empty tomb. Remember, John outran Peter and kind of stopped and looked in. But when Peter caught up, he not only looked in and actually went in, he just kind of like right on him. Now in this scene, Peter's the first to head to shore, but John was the first to recognize that it was the hand of the Lord. You see the differences, but God used both of them. 
And you'll see another thing that goes on further in this chapter. Let's see it. So. But arriving at the shore, Peter sees the Lord standing by a fire with fish already cooking. You ever wonder where Jesus got those fish? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was thinking about this. You ever wonder that? They obviously didn't have anything before that that they could have like thrown to him or anything. He knows. He went fishing himself. And the rest of the disciples, of course, arrived, and Peter soon rushed back to the boat and just haul in all the whole net, which I think it's in your book, but that many fish could have been like three hundred pounds of fish. That is a lot of fish. Very heavy. He was obviously a very powerful, strong man. The meal's prepared, and this is where Jesus says, come and die. So someone has outlined this part of the account as follows. No fish. No fish. And then, oh, fish. So how can we apply this account to our lives today? How can we apply this to our lives today? Somebody's like thinking of the witnessing kind of thing of uh, we have the world's ways and our ways of you know, doing the Lord's work. The Lord has his way and it's always <coughs> the best way. That may not make sense. Just a thought that, you know, they had seen Jesus after the resurrection. So they they were fresh there, but there was a time apparently where they didn't know what to do. They just went back and did something. Did something. Fish probably felt pretty empty, maybe at that that point. They didn't see Jesus in the Christ calls us to be fishers of men. And our responsibility is to share the gospel. But now many of us have to admit we've caught no fish. Again, I guess what about you? How many fish have you caught this year? How many of us have to answer no? But how much have we done? But still, how much have we answered? You know, the Lord changed the disciples. No, we haven't caught any fish to fish. He can also change us and our negative responses to that question. If we'll cast our net on the right side in the direction of his, of his leading. Some of us haven't lived right. We don't talk right. We don't act right. No wonder we don't catch anything. Christ can change all. And then this next point that we're going to get to here, I hope this is challenging to you. Doesn't come from As the disciples then gather around the fire here, the Lord is going to face Peter with the goal of restoring him to fellowship. 
remember, how many times did Peter deny the Lord? Where? What was the kind of location? It was kind of around something, wasn't it? Fire. Fire, wasn't it? Now Jesus is going to ask him a question three times beside another fire. The question. Look at it in John 21, <clears throat> verse 15. When they had dined, Jesus saith at the time of Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? And that question, do you love me? Pierced our heart today as much as it did his then. Peter had been with Christ for three years. He grown to love him so much that he claimed that all the others might forsake the Lord. He wouldn't. He just didn't know. I'm sure he meant that with every fiber of his being would have said, you know. But of course, when the moment of testing came, he failed. And his heart probably was still full of guilt about that as he stood beside this fire in Galilee. Imagine he probably could hardly look. Lord looked straight into his. Peter probably could sense what was coming. Imagine, probably imagine what was coming. Do you love me? That's what Peter was saying. Of course, knows that I love him. Peter must have thought, but my actions are denied. It's not like us. Peter also noticed that the Lord didn't call him Peter. What did he call him? Simon. His old name. Jesus had given him a new name. But he never used it when referring to him and he had to earn the right to call him. What did he call him? Cephas. This is another which means like a stone. point in his life, he was still in hell. see the answer now. What does he say? What does Peter say? Thou knowest that I love thee. Peter replied, probably somewhat equally, imagine. It's interesting, the words that are used here. Is in his initial question. First, we get back to it. How many times does Jesus ask the question? Three times he asks him that. And then, of course, you see the first two are kind of the question and answer response. Jesus' comeback is a little different. But then you see the third time. The third time it's asked, Simon, Son of Jonas, love us on me. What was Peter's response after that? Third time. It's interesting. That in the first question and the second question, the first two times he asks if Jesus, the word for love that Jesus used is agape. Love. It's first Corinthians 13. Charity is translated to love. That's the strongest note. Self-sacrificing of the love of God for us. Peter replied using a different word. Phileo. Word for love. 
which has maybe a effect of friendship or strong affection. But in verse 17, the third time Christ asks, Christ uses the same word he does. You have strong affection, like even love it. You know, and you see what Peter's response was there. Grieved. When Jesus asked him the third time. Christ changed the word grieving. But why would Peter not use No, because four, he, he he isn't gonna deny him, and he does. I think that kind of wraps us up. Okay, I want to say something I can't follow up on. You know, <laughs> interesting. Because sometimes it can be used interchangeably, but the fact that they're using such close proximity potential is really not intentional. The way it's really expected. The way Jesus asks the question, what do you mean? He probably refused to use it because he's going to Jesus doesn't stop there. He then moves to the questions and then his comeback. Jesus followed each of his questions and Peter's replies with variously worded little commands. You know, to, to feed little lambs, verse 15, provide spiritual food. You know, feed, to feed the sheep or little sheep, however it's worded, verse 16. I need them to tend or keep, you know, as a shepherd. And verse 17 kind of feed in more of a broader sense, feed a larger sheep. I call it that. Feed my sheep. Kind of see it progressing a little bit there. You know, Peter would never forget that because he did indeed love the Lord. And the Lord would use him greatly in the years to come. You know what? Peter had something to say about this. Put a finger here and turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. Book of 1 Peter, written by Peter. Someone want to volunteer to read verse First uh, Peter 5, verses 1 to 4. The elders which are among you, I exhort, who am also an elder, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. 
Feed the flock of God, which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, he shall receive a crown, he shall receive a crown of glory that takes away. No man, no preacher here, telling young pastors, feed the sheep, and the sheep. You can also consider some other interesting things about Peter's life. Of course, you can compare Christ's first calling of Peter with the call in this lesson. Again, we're going to talk about that further. Peter was called to become a fisher of men after a miraculous catch of fish, and we'll go back and look at that for times later in the Gospels. And here, he's restored to his calling after another miraculous catch of fish. Peter lost his fellowship by a fire, and here it's restored. But there's even some more interesting things still in this to look at. We know what you got over uh, We've seen meat and love, the command, and the future. Christ tells Peter here that he will die as an old man, but he didn't necessarily tell him how he would die, except to say that he would be carried to his death. I see that later on. Thou shalt be old, verse 18, thou shalt stretch thy hands, and thou shalt bear thee and carry thee. Tradition holds that Peter was crucified for his faith, allegedly upside down. And he felt unworthy to be crucified in the same way as his Lord. And after, of course, everything here after this, now Christ tells Peter, what does he tell him? Verse 19, what does he tell him? It's interesting. Peter kind of just jumps to something else. You see it here. Verse 20. You can see it kind of in verse 20. Kind of verse 23, basically. He basically, again, sees John, and he asks Jesus about John and his future. And Jesus basically tells him, Peter seeing him saying to Jesus, Lord, and what shall this man do? Jesus saying unto him, If I will, that or until I come, that follow him. Follow me. Not worry about him. Of course, then you see, then with this saying abroad, among the brethren, that disciple should not 
die. And Jesus said, not only him, he shall not die, but if I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to be? And John clarifying note. Again, interesting to see Peter and John. You can see him in the book of Acts, too. Very significant difference in personality and perspective when they work together. I'm glad he was the Christ. So, conclusion may this be our challenge. Don't worry about rest of the people in our church, your family, ensure that your life is what God wants you to be, and that we're being faithful to Him. It's so easy to get caught up on what everybody else is doing, but our job, follow me. Jesus says to every one of us, follow that. When that's follow that. May that be a challenge for us. Is that challenging thing? Let's look at a couple questions here to finish off. <coughs> finish off our study this morning. <coughs> we kind of already talked about some of this, but you know, why do you think Peter decided to go fishing between Jesus' appearance to his disciples and his own third time Jesus had appeared to his disciples? Again, they're seemingly a break between the second and third. Of course, then it doesn't say uh, how long after this you know, that he ascended. You know, Jesus kind of 40 days after he was just preparing the gospel, but 40 days after his resurrection is when he ascended. In the case of the Macedonian, Pentecost, etc. Pentecost, you know, immediately after Passover. But why do you think Peter decided to go fishing? Jesus' appearance, and those disciples can want to talk about that a little bit. But. I think it's where he felt comfortable. It was something that was automatic to him. He just feel like, I don't know about you, uh, do something that you're familiar with. You don't really have to think about it, but you can think about something else. The old topic. Yes. Like you need to do something. Jesus is sitting there waiting to do something. Okay. Okay, so next question. What do you think you would have done? <laughs> really just kind of you were one. Just like, what well, do you need to think about it? Put yourself in their shoes. I mean, it's like, oh yeah, we're just waiting on Jesus. What are you talking about? Self in their shoes. When he appeared to him the first time, it was eight days later. Again, this is between the second and third time. It doesn't say how long in between. Maybe a week? Two weeks? Three weeks? You know what I mean? After he was crucified, it was three days. Then eight days. My guess is it was even a longer time. He was preparing them to know that he is there. So why do you think Peter was saddened when Jesus asked him if he loved him three times? I'm sure it brought 
Got that uh, still open wound of denying him three times. They like to be a reminder that it's threefold denial. Or it could be just he knows the Lord knows that he's the Lord is the Son of God, he's the Christ. He knows the answer. Why would he be asking this question three times? That would be bothersome. So why do you think Peter was interested in what would happen to the other disciple that Jesus loved? John. Why do you think Peter was interested in what would happen to him? They all got that. <laughs> you think about what did Jesus just finish telling you? that John had a special place in Jesus' heart and he wouldn't face his difficulties at the time. Think about these questions. So do you think it's fair that some believers are persecuted for their faith while others seem to have to be true? That some believers are persecuted for their faith while others seem to have a new road to follow the Lord. The Lord's ways are not our ways. And those who are persecuted are the ones who also experience the closeness of the closeness of God. It's not a better thing. It's fair, it's what we all deserve. John kind of concludes his gospel here. Of course, he gives that clarifying note about himself there. In verse 24, this is the disciple which testified that these things and wrote these things. And we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, but which, if they should be written every one, I suppose that even a world itself could not contain the books. John obviously had a very close walk with the Lord. And it's interesting, thinking these disciples, these are the same ones that a couple weeks before, and I ain't even knowing the Lord, running away, there. But you see, in the book of Acts, two weeks later, a couple weeks later, the day of Pentecost, which is an amazing thing that happened there. And we see the persecution started to come. Uh, I think it's in John 4, in John, or uh, Acts 4, Acts 5. <coughs> Peter and John left the temple to pray at the Lord's hands away. And that happens when they get arrested for the first time. And you see them talking and answering, What are you doing? Like, what authority do you have? Talking and 
chief, you see the chief priests and Pharisees are talking about. And then when they perceive the boldness of Peter and John, they perceive that they were unlearned and ignorant men. Based, uh, let me paraphrase there, but then they took knowledge that they knew Jesus. It's the same guys that are now as they better to obey God not to obey God told not to preach. Don't bring this man's blood upon us. Rejoicing that they're counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. They're rejoicing after they get beaten. It's the same guys. But for us, think about the effect of the Lord's resurrection had on them. It was the same guys that ran away, denied that they even knew him, did nothing. May that have the same effect on us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for.